The Cinema Limbo podcast is part of Podnose, the UK's leading independent entertainment podcasting network. For episode archives of Cinema Limbo and all of the shows on the network, visit us at www.podnose.com. You can also follow us on Twitter via at Podnose or send us an email via admin at podnose.com. This is the season of sharing, of meeting with friends and family, of greeting strangers with warmth and companionship. But not all adhere to such high ideals. For some, this is a season of evil. My name is Jeremy Phillips, writer, critic, and quadrilateral, and you are listening to Cinema Limbo. Tonight's edition examines the 1974 Canadian horror film Black Christmas, and my guest is Chris Armsby decision to partake of the refreshments I supplied could be his last. Hello, Chris. Hello. Merry Christmas. Happy Christmas. Now, we're sitting here with our ginger wine and our mince pies in front of a, yeah. a fireplace that's not roaring because it's not that cold at the moment. No. And you know what the first thing I thought of was? That was Canadian horror films. I can see why your mind would automatically go there. So, what can you tell me about David Cronenberg? He's Canadian. Uh, Good start. He likes body horror. Um, did I mention he's Canadian? <laughs> <laughs> well, one thing that annoys me, and this is a, a tangent already, oh. um, he has the highest, he's received the highest honour that can be bestowed upon a Canadian civilian. Okay. And yet, he doesn't qualify for a knighthood. Right. Because they don't have knighthoods in Canada. But they do in some other Commonwealth countries, because Peter Jackson is a knight. Yes, oh, it must make sense to somebody. Well, that to be a Sir David Cronenberg. Yeah, but after the Fury over crash, that seems better. What would the Daily Yeah, Mail but it would, be, it would be a Canadian knighthood, but it's, yeah, that's it's, like, it's like good anywhere. <laughs> it's like luncheon vouchers. Yeah. Well, um, Cronenberg won a Genie Award for Best Director in 1983, which is the Canadian Film Academy, uh, for Videodrome, mm. which is a bit of a left-field choice for uh, that kind of uh, serious award. But it was actually a joint award with Bob Clark, the director of A Christmas Story, which is a very warm, nostalgic, comic view of Christmases gone by. However, that was not Bob Clark's first Christmas film. Oh, I see. He'd made another one nine years earlier, which was very different. It's less jolly, isn't it? And that was Black Christmas. Mm. So what did you think of this delightful film? I started out... I, I started out... I actually started out hating it. I thought it was really going to try my patience. And there's definitely a point... And I'm sure as we talk, talk through it, we'll come to the point where it re- the film really kicked into gear. And by the end... Genuinely, I was incredibly tense by the whole, about the whole thing, and I ended up really enjoying it. I first saw it 
quite a while ago now. It's a good maybe fifteen years ago, um, and it aired on Channel Four late one night. Okay. It was obviously, just before Christmas, and I watched it on my own. Everyone else was asleep, and after it finished, I was not ready to go to bed. <laughs> yeah, I can understand. I was quite creeped out. Did you check the loft? No. Uh, well, he said that was a good mistake. I had a mirror in my room at the time. Ah. Yeah, so there was a lot of sort of walking around and washing my hands and <laughs> The film was actually loosely based on a true story. Yes. Uh, oh, oh, no, sorry, I think I'm confusing, sorry, I'm confusing true stories with urban myths. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you, I, I, we'll get to what I thought you were going to say a little bit later. Well, there is the urban myth of um, yeah. the calls coming from inside That's the house. it, that's exactly what I was thinking of, yeah. Um, but that, in turn, seems to actually be connected to a true murder case of um, people being menaced by people. Oh, okay. And uh, children being abducted. Um, a, the, the, a babysitter rather than a uh, right. sorority house. And that was all fed into a screenplay by Roy Moore, um, which was titled, and I think it's possibly the best exploitation movie title I've ever heard, Stop Me. Yeah, that's a good title. Just have that on the poster. Yeah. Big letters. Stop me. That's frightening. It doesn't need, doesn't need an exclamation mark or anything. No. no. But uh, it wound up falling into the hands of Bob Clark, who's an American filmmaker who's now based in Canada, had made a few low-budget horror movies. And um, it was shot for relatively little money, $600,000, mm. and released in the autumn of 1974 in Canada and a couple of months later, just before Christmas in the US. Um, and it's quite, it's an interesting movie. Yeah, yeah. You can see all the elements that the slasher movie would then grow out of. Yes, and you can also see, there's a few, there's a couple of points as well where the film wrong-footed me, because I saw something, I, I, I think the example I'm thinking of is there's a point where the house, what do they call it, the house mother? She's cleaning her teeth, and she's got a bathroom cabinet with a mirror on it and she pulls it across and it's like oh yeah fine I, I've seen this in a movie like a million times when you pull it back the killer's going to be and of course the killer isn't there because that cliche hasn't been invented for the next 20 years or something no exactly but instead she um, takes the, <laughs> the lid off the toilet system and pulls out a bottle of whiskey mm. and uses it to rinse her mouth out yes. and the scene is just a, a, a hilarious drunken lady mm. that role was originally offered to Betty Davis Okay, yeah. Not sure I can see that. By that point in her career, she was doing Hammer movies, so uh, yeah. it's not unreasonable to... She may, if anything, have been a little bit too old for the role. Yeah. Um, but it's it's got quite a notable cast. Mm. Well, um, I, I was watching it, obviously the credits start to roll, and Margot Kidder's name comes up, and I'm now going to have to take a run-up at the name of the man from 2001, Kia... D- Dull? Delay. Delay. Keir Delay. Right, there you go. I f- oh, sorry, I didn't clear that hurdle. Who is, he's too old to be a regular student, but he's not old enough to be a mature student. No, but it's like <laughs> Greece. I mean, that was what threw me at first, was you get the establishing shot of the house, and it's got the Greek symbols on the front. I go, okay, fine, it's a sorority house. And then inside, there's all these grizzled 20-somethings. I go, <laughs> oh, maybe this isn't a sorority after all. And uh, Olivia Hussey, who mm. um, had been in Franco Zeffirelli's Romeo and Juliet... Um, Andrea Martin, who would go on to be in SCTV, which is a, a, a major sketch show. John Saxon as the detective who 
took over from Edmund O'Brien, the okay. veteran character actor, who, um, rather sadly, it was rather akin to the previous year, casting William Hartnell in um, the Doctor Who 10th anniversary special, The Three Doctors. When they phoned him up to offer him the role, oh. he was excited and said yes. When they followed up later on, they realised that was a good day. Oh dear. That Hartnell and O'Brien were both suffering from quite severe dementia. Um, so John Saxon was offered the role at such short notice that he got straight on a plane, was <laughs> flown to Toronto, got off the plane, and was driven straight to the location to film his first scene. Yeah, that's, that's, even, that's short notice, isn't it? I think, am I right in thinking that somebody like Gilda Radner or one of the early Saturday Night Live yes, people Gil- was offered a part? Gilda Radner was, I believe, offered the role taken by Andrea Martin, that's okay. of uh, Phil. And um, there's a few notable people for mm. the um, Art Hindle, who plays the um, hockey-playing boyfriend in the gigantic fur coat, uh, later played uh, Karen Allen's husband in the Invasion of the Body Snatchers remake. Oh, Okay. I think it's Karen Allen. Yeah. I mean, obviously, the two people that stood out for me were, were Margot Kidder and Dave Bauman. I'm not trying to kiss. <laughs> I'm not trying to kiss. All of those names. But the movie starts in a... Uh, has a deliberately very, very low-key um, style. And a very low-key visual style all the way through. Mm. Where there's a party going on in a sorority house. It's coming up to Christmas. People are starting to go off and just you know, break up for the holidays. But they're being watched from outside by someone um, who is observing them through a wide-angle lens. Yes. <laughs> yeah, which immediately made me think of um, Star Trek, because there's a couple of episodes towards the end of Star Trek's run where people go mad, and their mad point, their mad point of view is, is wide-angled lens vision. Um, but yeah, it's, got, it's quite an effective little gimmick. because And uh, particularly the way it was shot so that the camera was actually mounted onto the camera operator mm. which <laughs> allowed him to start climbing around on bits of the set Think, yes hang on how are they doing that <laughs> it's because it, it, it's physically strapped to him so that he's able to start climbing up yeah. the trellis work we have the house mother mrs mack who is uh, a boozy type and she is laughed at behind her back but yes it's, it's affectionate laughter um and we have the we're introduced to the various characters. We have Jess, who is quite quiet and reserved and English, apparently. Bob, who is Margot Kidder, who is also very boozy and a bit very more. loud. And yes, one could say uncouth, but yeah. you know, you could say you, unc- you do you. You could say uncouth, but that would miss a good chance to use the word obnoxious. So. Yeah, well. Part of the thing that I like about the movie is that it is very definitely making a point about um, the way women are treated. Mm. And Bob is really not a very nice person, but no. she's kind of, she's got the right to be that horrible. Yeah, oh, and it's, again, it's interesting because I think in a more modern horror film, she's clearly the nastiest one, so she would presumably be the one to be killed off first? Or... Whereas, in fact, the one who's killed off first is the nicest mm. and most virtuous character in the whole movie. Yeah. So immediately, all the rules that we know from slasher movies go out of the window. Yes, yeah. And yeah, she's got posters in her room of an old lady giving the finger and naked people laying in the love... In yes, the, yeah. the, the peace, peace symbol. And she's got a boyfriend who's on the hockey team because it's Canada. But everyone seems to really like her. Yeah. And that she was just a nice, 
you know, hard-working girl with a nice boyfriend. Yeah. And, and I like that when we meet the boyfriend, <laughs> he's, he's a really kind of engaging character because he's yelling at the police because they're not doing their yes. fucking job. Yes, yeah. And it's interesting, and, and in a way she's so sort of nice and people don't really, don't even notice at first that she's gone missing. They exactly. just assume, assume she's somewhere else. They just assume that she's gone home yeah. because um, she's killed almost immediately. Mm. Have, we, have we missed any of the story yet? Oh, mm. there's a cat called Claude and there's a couple of, oh, there's Phyllis who is known as Phil. Um, her boyfriend who appears briefly and swears at children dressed as Father Christmas. Oh, that's right, yes. Because again... Just because it's funny. It's, yeah. <laughs> um, I think that's all the, the main girls and then there's some various other characters. Um, but while she's packing, uh, Claire thinks that Claude the cat is in her cupboard. That's it, yeah. But it isn't Claude the cat, it's the killer who strangles her and suffocates her on a dry cleaning bag. Yes, and then pops her in the loft. And then pops her in the loft on a rocking chair with plastic all over her face. And uh, there's an interesting feature on the DVD that oh. explains quite a few things, that how they actually did her sitting on the rocking chair like that, with her head completely encased in a plastic bag, that she's got it going into her mouth, and yeah. she's made a hole in it, so that she okay. can breathe through that. But they shot it so carefully mm. that she just held her breath. Yeah. It's, it's, a, it's a very effective image. It's, it's yeah. the poster. Is, yes, well, of course. That. Yes, yeah. um, it has that, that amazing tagline. If this movie doesn't make your skin crawl, it's on too tight. <laughs> Which you could put that on any horror movie, but it's oh, just yeah. it's just a really great line to sell. Oh, and that the house has also been getting crank phone calls. Yes. Um and very, very weird and unpleasant sounding crank phone calls because it's a, someone making weird noises and screaming and mm. talking in multiple voices. And then making really unpleasant, obscene yes. remarks. And I was quite surprised by... Yes, I, that's exactly what I was going to... I was using a word I, I don't know if you're going to allow me to use it, so I won't. I think I've used it on previous episodes, and I've instituted a new rule. We can swear now. Oh, okay. none of my family actually bother listening to this show. Fair enough. Um, yeah, yeah. It's like, lick your pretty cunt. And thought, oh, this is... Ugh. And repeated use of, uh, of that word as well, which I found... It's unusual uh, yeah, in the film. 1974. You were allowed to yeah. get away with that then? They didn't just started used saying "fuck" in the studio movie. When did The Exorcist? The come previous out? year. Oh yeah. How explicit so. was the line? Because in some ways, that's what that's what the when the killer is babbling to himself. That's kind of what it reminded me of. Was the sort of the same kind of sounds and just babbling that they used in in The Exorcist at times. You're right. I hadn't I hadn't thought of that. Um, but I can't remember, apart from obviously making assertions about what Regan's mother does, I don't remember if they ever actually used the C word. I'd be amazed if they hadn't. Yeah. Um, Bob gets on the phone and says, oh, why, don't you, why, don't you stick your, why don't you stick your tongue in an electrical socket and get a charge out of that? And then the voice says very calmly, I'm going to kill you. And it just hangs up. Mm. And that's creepy. Um, and the following day... Claire's father, Mr. Harrison, who could not be more square and straight-laced. No. He's almost like a Michael Palin caricature of an accountant or something. Yeah. 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 Um, he turns up to collect her and take her back to... Take her, take her back home yeah. for Christmas. But she's not around. Yeah. And um, he also meets Peter, who is Jess's boyfriend. 
and who is um, a pianist. Mm. And he is very highly strung, yes. ironically <laughs> enough. Yes, exceptionally. It looks lazy the way he is set up all the way through the film as being the most obvious killer in movie history. Yeah. It couldn't possibly be anyone else because it's so clearly him. He's a complete dick. He's a really unpleasant, controlling boyfriend. Mm. There is the parallel between the things on the phone about this backstory about what the killer is... Yeah. What, what's going on in his brain and what's going on with Jess and Peter, which is that she's pregnant and wants to have an abortion and he is adamant that she should not have an abortion. And he specifically uses the phrase, was it like having a wart removed? Exactly, yes. Which, which then comes back in the phone call. Oddly enough, that was the first... The point when I tuned out of the... Obviously, um, and I've forgotten her name. She's so inoffensive, I've forgotten her name already. The first victim. Claire. Claire. Poor Claire gets off, and then the film spends what felt like quite a while in more vague sort of soap opera. It's, it's the characters bicker or they talk to each other. And I never really picked up. I just thought that you know, he was a bit of an unpleasant boyfriend. But then you get the sequence where she's talking on the phone to the killer and the killer uses the phrase like having a wart removed. And that was the point when, for me, the pieces suddenly fell into place. It's like, oh, okay, is he actually more than just a bit high maintenance and highly strung? Is he the is he the killer? And that's obviously what then subsequently led to making the rest of the film unbearably tense. Yeah, because everyone eventually comes to the same conclusion that the audience has reached mm. an hour earlier that obviously Peter is the killer. Yeah. It can't possibly be anyone else. And the twist is, no, it wasn't him. He's just a horrible person. Yes, he's but just... he's just a horrible person. He's not a murderer, even though he actually threatens Jess at one point. Yes, I think he does, doesn't he? Yeah, I mean, it's it's left unspoken, and I think he's interrupted, but mm. it's on the verge of, yeah. you know, saying something horrible. But no, he's <laughs> he, he never actually did anything wrong, no. apart from Just being he... a really shit human being. Yes, and it's a terrific performance. It's in, and it's one of those moments I've realised I don't think I've ever seen that Clear delay. Clear delay in... Anything else. I don't think... <laughs> and and I, I, I'm now thinking... I don't know what kind of career he had. Um, it's just interesting. It's just odd because, because he's he's a terrific actor, but and you you make the assumption, I guess, that for a lot of actors they have the career that they want, and maybe his he decided that he wanted to steer clear with lots and lots of big blockbuster films. But I don't. Well, looking at his um, his filmography, he's obviously worked regularly. It's, it's very sparse, in fact. Oh, okay. Um, in fact, he made no theatrically released films between 1984 and 2003. Oh, interesting. What was it that brought him back, then? Um, something called Three Days of Rain, hmm. which doesn't have a Wikipedia page, according to this book that I'm definitely looking yes, at. Yes, yeah. Um, he was in some uh, TV movies and some short films, and he's been in various things, but little leaps out at me. Yes. Um, he was in the original version of The Thin Red Line, the Audrey Hepburn story for television, The Good Shepherd... The um, Robert De Niro directed yeah. film, uh, The Accidental Husband, Infinitely Poet About, which is a film from a couple of years ago, Space Station 78, again, that's a, that's a name I recognise, a lot of television in the 60s. I'm just, he's just one of those people, I suppose, 
maybe it's just the fact that 2001 is such an iconic film. You just kind of assume that anybody that's been in that. But when you, you know, the three people in the cast, obviously you've got Keir Delay, 2001, and Black Christmas. You've got the guy that played Frank Poole, who I think was in Star an episode Trek. of Star Trek. But two years earlier. And you've got Leonard Rossiter. <laughs> He's not the other lead in 2001. The but other he, lead is Douglas Rain. But he should, you know. And, the, and you've got the guy who's the voice of Hal who crops yeah. up in sleep. Douglas Rain. Yeah, yeah. And he was, a, he was a voiceover guy. Yeah. And it's just... I don't know. I don't, I, 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 well, 2001 isn't really an actor's film. No, this it's is a, true. It's a director's film. Yeah. Um, which is why it's... I find very antiseptic and unengaging. <laughs> well, and I wouldn't be surprised as well to find that Stanley Kubrick had made some kind of conscious decision not to cast name actors. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, um, uh, the there were two original choices to do the voice of Hal. One was Nigel Davenport, um, an, the English actor who mm. it was felt wasn't a good fit. And the other was Martin Balsam, who just sounded too much like a human. Oh, OK. <laughs> <laughs> because, you know, see him in... Um, Psycho or Catch Twenty Two. He's a very sort of mm. characterful, and he wanted something that was very flat yeah. and bland and measured. And presumably, if you're going for that very flat, bland, you don't want the audience to be judged. Oh, it's Tim from that thing. Yeah, yeah. So he got a Canadian voiceover guy who he heard on a documentary that he watched for research. Um, yes, Mr. Harrison meets Peter, who is immediately unpleasant. While the sorority girls are supervising a children's Christmas party, where Phil's boyfriend Patrick is dressed up as Father Christmas, saying "Ah, oh, ho, 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 shit!" <laughs> while there was a child sitting on his lap. Yes, yeah. And Bob is also giving wine to the children as well. That's it. Yeah, and he's and and you know, Mister Mister Harrison is obviously getting more and more thin-lipped and more and more Michael Palin. Yeah, I mean, he's he's worried about. The kind of influence this environment mm. is having on his daughter, and I, yes. I see. Yeah, you've definitely got a point with that. Yeah, you, you can kind of see him as the character that wanted to put his foot down about his daughter coming away to 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 college, and he's now turning up probably at the end of the first term or something like yeah. that, and he's just having all his worst prejudices confirmed. Yeah, but then as time goes on, his character never really compromises. No, but. He does realise, oh, all these college kids, they're not terrible, they're just, you know, they're permissive. Yeah. But, like, he meets um, Chris, the boyfriend, who they immediately kind of form an alliance. He says, right, let's get shit done, let's go yeah. down to the police station and knock some heads together. Yeah. And because everybody thought, oh, my daughter has a boyfriend, oh, I don't know, oh, I don't know about that. But it turns out he's actually a really stand up, decent guy. Yeah. Because that's what real life is like. It's, yes, exactly. It's not, you know, even though there's illegal boozing and illegal all sorts of things, college is not the hotbed of um, illegality that uh, some people might assume. Yes. I went to university. Uh, it didn't stick. <laughs> um, yes, and uh, Mr. Harrison goes to the house and uh, to look around. He meets Mrs. Mack. And she's definitely def- desperately trying to cover up mm. all the... Uh, all the the permissiveness that's going on. Yeah, she puts a she she puts her hand over somebody's bare a, a bare bottom on a poster and stuff like that. I found I found a, some of the comedy was a little bit laboured. If I'm being honest, this as I say, but this was the period of the film when I 
it was kind of working against me. And a little bit later, Margot Kidder's character has some long monologue about turtles making love. Yes, as, that's, uh, that, that definitely brings the film to a, a yeah. crawl. Because we just need a scene of Bob being obnoxious yes. to Mr. Harrison. Did you think it was interesting that at the beginning of that scene, Bob was reading Playboy and looking at the centrefold? I, you know, I didn't register that. I didn't see that at all. One could infer from that that maybe she's bi. Yeah, yeah, quite possibly. But it's so, again, it's the whole oh, permissiveness. Yes, and yeah. yet no one else really has a problem with it. No, that's right. No, I suppose it's in a, fact it's almost as though she's doing it to provoke him. Yeah, I think a, a lot of. Um, I mean, she's she's obviously decided because she's provoking. Claire, isn't she? She she makes some very unflattering comments about her, and that's yeah. why why in, is it in the course of the obscene phone call or just in the wake of the episode? And Claire goes upstairs, and that's when she gets done in. Yeah. Um. So she's obviously got a slightly needling relationship. Does she refer to her as a professional virgin at one point? She does. Yeah. yeah. So she obviously feels that Claire has inherited her her dad's kind of prim. Attitudes, yeah, um, and it's entirely possible that that boyfriend Chris has been complaining to, <laughs> to well, Bob or something like that. It could be that she's just very goody goody, mm. and Chris is clearly very angry, very worried about what's happened. Yes. So whatever their relationship is, it's clearly very healthy. It seems to be a fairly solid relationship. If, if, it, yeah. if it is very chaste, then he's either perfectly okay with it, or you know, just happy to yes, you know. Enjoy her personality. Exactly. You know, yeah. It's not all. It's not what the first thing that all men think of. You know. No, that's right. Not all men. I do apologise <laughs> for that, but it's, all, it's it's Canadian men. You see, that's the secret. Yes, they're all just very nice. Yeah, like David Cronenberg. He's lovely. Yes, or they may want to try to turn you into something weird or stick videotapes in your stomach. <laughs> oh, that's only in film. <laughs> yes, yeah, so let's do that in real life. Let's hope not. Um, there's there's another crank call and. One of the, the screeched lines that comes through is, what your mother and I must know is, where did you put the baby, Billy? Oh, okay. And I think, right. That's, that's kind of opening up a lot of yeah, yeah, questions about what, what on earth is going on in his brain. Mm. Um, a number of people separately recorded uh, the phone voices. Yeah, I'm not surprised. They're all mixed together. It's very effective. And like I say, it just immediately reminded me of The Exorcist. Although the the voices in the voice work in The Exorcist is one particular. It's all one actress. Yeah. Mercedes McCambridge. Yeah. Um, Nick Mancuso did most of the the main Billy voice, and he recorded much of it while standing on his head hmm. to try and distort the sound of his own voice. He certainly did. it worked. Yeah. It's, it's very it's a very eerie it's a very peculiar sound. Hmm. He also was on set doing the dialogue off camera so that the actresses would have something to react to. Um, Bob and Mr. Harrison go to the police station and pick a fight with the desk sergeant. Yes, who's hopeless. Who is a complete waste of space. Um, To get revenge on him, um, Bob gives the uh, phone number for the sorority house, but with the area code FE for fellatio. That's it. Because, oh yeah, it's a new exchange. How how do you spell that? Well... (laughs) That comes back later yes. on as well. And I think the, the funniest scene in the movie, apart from the bit where one of the cops turns up having been shot in the arse by a, oh, that's by a right. farmer. Yes, yeah. And it has nothing to do with anything else. No, it's just, but it's just other funny. stuff going on. <laughs> um, oh, and the fact that Chris plays hockey means that he's wearing a hockey mask. Yeah, of course. Yeah. 
Yeah. Hadn't, so that's, hadn't... again, it's, so it's Halloween and Friday the 13th. Um, creepy stuff on the phone. Nightmare on Elm Street, maybe mm. there? So it's basically everything grew out of this. And Scream, I guess, as well, with the conversation at the start on the phone about what's your, is it, what's your favourite horror film, or am I getting mixed up? Creepy phone calls. Yeah, yeah. That's enough. And, and, yeah. and, but Scream, in turn, grew out of all the others. That's kind of mm. another generation down the line. And, of course, the success of Scream, when inevitably there was a remake of Black Christmas, which we will talk about later on. Yes. When I was uh, in, when in the course of just half-heartedly looking up some stuff about the film, typed Black Christmas into Google, clicked on the Wikipedia page, and going, Michelle Trachtenberg was in, was in Black Christmas? That must be the daughter of the one that was in Buffy the Vampire. That must be the mother of the one that was in Buffy the Vampire. So, no, I just I'd clicked on the wrong film. Well, the piano exam that Pete, that oh. um, we have to do goes badly. Yes, yeah. Or does it? I don't know enough about classical music to. This is the terrible thing. I'm sitting there watching it, and obviously Keir Keirdorella is doing his very best. He's twitching and emoting and grimacing, and I'm going. I don't know. I know. I don't know enough about piano music to know. It, maybe it's meant to sound like this. Maybe it's meant to sound like he's blindfolded. Yeah. And it's like crazy jazz piano. It could be Stockhausen or something like that. Mm. Um, you can't dance to it. No, definitely not. No. Uh, meanwhile, a woman reports her daughter is missing. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Thirteen-year-old girl goes missing, and um, there's a search party which some of the college girls join in on, and they find the body. Mm. And it has almost nothing to do with the rest of the movie. No, it's a kind of an odd diversion as well. The inference, I think, is that the killer killed the girl as well, but it doesn't really have any connection to anything else. The only... The, the, the one... It's one of those moments, I wonder if it's there to kind of solve a bit of a story problem, which is... The police have to take... When they turn up to say that their sorority house has been receiving crank phone calls, the police have to instantly take that seriously. And I wonder if they just felt they needed something more. But the police don't take it seriously. Well, the the idiot policeman doesn't take it seriously, but once it gets off to the detective and he goes, well, OK, you've got a missing, you've got a missing college girl, you've got crank phone calls to the house where the college girl's gone missing, and you've got a dead kid. I just wonder if they felt that... The child murder. It, it does feel a little bit unlikely that there's two... That, sort of, that, it, there's that it would two, be a coincidence. Yeah, yeah either that it's a, a coincidence or, or that there's two, kill, two killers operating at the same time. I just, I think it might just be there as a kind of a story point, more than anything, to just right. explain why the police suddenly you know, want, to, want to go and tap the phone and all that kind of stuff. Because the fact that they ignore the previous um, complaints, yeah. again, it points to that whole thing about violence against women not being taken seriously. Well, and it, it, as well, I think it's just it's just the fact that the, the desk sergeant's a complete idiot, isn't he? He's doing he it. is, yeah, but he, he just doesn't care. Yeah, he doesn't care, and he's not passing on reports, and yeah. I mean, there is, um, I think there's a line earlier on, they're talking about um, uh, the creepy voice on the phone, and um, Bob says, oh, you, you can't rape a townie. So there's a really kind of weirdly... Mm conflicted relationship between the college yes. students and the locals. I mean, the, the, the film was actually entirely shot in Toronto, so I, I hesitate to call them townies because mm. Toronto is quite a big place. I mean, I, I sat through it, and because I've got no ear for accents or anything like that, I just assumed it was somewhere in America. It never really occurred to me that it might they, be. They do go out of their way to put a little American flag on the detective's desk. Uh, yeah, you see, I might have picked up on that subconsciously or something. And yeah. um, 
But there is a, a mix of accents as well. Saxon is American, Olivia Hussey is English, a lot of the other actors mm. are Canadian. And there is some noticeable aboot. Yeah, you see, I missed that completely. Because I'm programmed by South Park to find Well, yes, funny. yeah, that's true. And then these, things, and these come up in tense scenes. Says, but, 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 Billy, what are you talking about? Mm-hmm. And it's, no, that's not supposed to be funny. Yeah. <laughs> Stop laughing. And I think over the course of all this, the house mother has been killed. Not, not, um, oh, is, not quite yet. Oh, a little bit. Well, Peter... Um, but some, does, has somebody else died, or am I getting ahead of myself? Uh, I think... No. Because I remember, I remember feeling with the film that there was... If I'm watching a slasher film, I expect bodies falling out of cupboards, basically. And yeah. I remember feeling there was a distinct lull. The first murder comes very quickly, and then there's quite a long time before it picks up again. Yes, I think that's... Um... It's probably deliberate. It's, it's uh, something that I think we've spoken about before, the way that you have like the pre-credit scene mm. sequence. That's the first murder, yeah. the whole build-up to the first murder. And then you have a long period where it's just suspense, where you have um, the phone calls, where you have Claire having gone missing, um, you have the, the girl who's been killed, all building suspense to the next yeah. crescendo, which is the murder of Mrs. Mack, who's yes. moved up to the attic and gets hit in the face with a block and tackle. Yes, yeah. And I think that was the problem. And I think this was... Because I wasn't engaging that much with any of the characters, this is where the film tried my patience. But. Why are you engaging with Peter's revolting black and white jacket that he wears while he smashes up his piano? I don't remember that at all. It I is eye-scorchingly horrible. Wow. I wasn't watching a very good quality print. Neither was I. Um, I was watching the... Uh, the Crappy old DVD from oh, okay. Tartan Video. I they, they they didn't do any remastering then. Well, as of um, as of this recording, it's about to be released on Blu-ray in the UK for the first time oh, wow, okay. by One Hundred One Films. So, listener, you should be able to get hold of it now, hmm. and it probably looks a lot better. Yeah, I would hope so. Uh, particularly that there's a very weird sound edit right at the beginning of the film. The sound cuts in very abruptly. Yeah, I th- right at the opening titles. Yeah, yeah, that rings a bell. I think I remember thinking that there was something odd going on there. And it it kind of reminded me a more... When when um, John Carpenter made Halloween, it was kind of outside the studio system, wasn't it? I yes, think. it was independent. And one of the things that he he's subsequently said in interviews was that he, he really wanted to make sure the sound quality was good, I think, because he felt that good sound quality made a film seem more professional. Um Whereas, I don't know, Black Christmas, is it a studio film or is it...? No, it was independently made. Okay, again. yeah. Again, it was, it was made for $600,000. Yeah, well, that's... Um, I imagine that there was a, a large degree of um, government financing mm. because the Canadian government has always poured money into yeah. uh, local film production. That's the only reason why David Cronenberg got a career because who on earth would fund those yes, crazy films true. that they're trying to make? Um, I'm sure I've told this story before about him making um, Scanners that um, he, his previous film, The Brood, was about a woman who would embody her own hatred and form of children who'd run around and murder people she didn't like. And Cronenberg made that film while he was going through a really horrible divorce. Oh, no. <laughs> um, but then a couple of years later, um, he'd take, turned things around, he'd remarried, he had a new daughter, um, and the Canadian Film Fund, I forget what the actual name of it is, they were just throwing money at him <laughs> to, to make a new movie, make a new movie. So he decided to make, oh, well, maybe a spy film. Spy films are fun. I'll make a spy movie. And that was Scanners. Right. So that's what Cronenberg thinks a spy movie looks like. <laughs> yes. 
Yeah, and we can only hope he gets to direct more genre. I'd like to see his version of uh, a romantic comedy. Yeah, it's called uh, The Parasite Murders. Okay. About the parasite that makes everyone really horny and then they all fuck each other in a swimming pool. Doesn't sound very romantic. It's a happy ending. They go oh, out, well, they go yeah. out and infect the whole world. Oh, fair enough then. Yeah, it's lovely. Um, the, um, the documentary style of filming, when they're organising the search party mm. and... Um, Detective John Saxon, the co's character, I can't remember the name of. No. It's totally different. It's it's filmed like a, very much like a news report. Mm. It's very um, matter of fact, very real world. Yeah, and I think that's an aesthetic that covers the whole movie. The whole film is shot in a very realistic, non-stylized way for the yeah. most part, so that we just see this. This is just a real world. This is perfectly normal environment that where the horror is just gradually creeping in at the edges. Yeah. And it doesn't compare well. Well, it, it does compare very well to the remake, yeah. oh, <laughs> which, okay. which is filmed as though it's a horror movie. Yeah, and the result is it's not the slightest scary, and it's also incredibly gory for no reason. Mm. There's a bit where someone cuts cookie cutter shapes out of someone's back and then bakes them and then eats them and because they're mad because because they're crazy. Right. And in that version, the whole backstory of Billy is explained, mm. and it turns oh. out that he had jaundice, so he's actually yellow for some reason. And um, Agnes is his um, sister slash daughter because right. his mother raped him. And um, Agnes is played by a man. Okay. Uh, so I think part, I think it's supposed to be so that Billy, you think that it's Billy, but it's actually Agnes. But it also says, oh yeah, people who are the product of incest are kind of weird, transgendered monsters. Also transgender. Ugh. Yes, that's so hard. that's dated well. Yes, yeah, definitely. No, I mean, because that's one of the things I... For a film that's so free with the uh, with unacceptable words, it's very, very po-faced about showing any gore. Um, when they have the search party for the uh, for the murder victim, people are reacting at horror to something that's off-camera. Yeah. And I just kind of... Not because, not because I wanted to see a murder victim, yeah. but I just kind of expected there to be a cutaway shot, and I was almost surprised that it wasn't there. Well, it's like you say, there's things that are acceptable and unacceptable. Like yeah. swearing in, in certain company, let's say, is perfectly fine. Yeah. But the sight of a murdered 13-year-old child... Yeah. Oh, no, no, we'll draw the line there. That's horrible. Mm. I mean, saying piss and shit and fuck is okay. And when they're on the phone and, um, yeah. and Billy, is, Billy says, cunt, that's... Quite shocking. It's a genuine and the, shock. And the reaction is, Ugh, yeah. this is, this is horrible because of the context. Yeah. So yeah. It's, um, it's just interesting how little blood and gore there is all the way through the film, mm. considering that four or five people get brutally murdered. I think it's it, it it's an interesting reflection of what it's like in movies now. Yeah, where I suppose that's true. Swearing and sex are dirty. But blood and guts is fine. Yeah, and I, here it's the other way around. So yeah, violence is horrible, but swearing and sex are kind of okay. And I suppose the other thing is, they are inventing the slasher movie from the ground up, and there may be stuff that you kind of take for granted because it's appeared in other films that it just never, as a, it just never occurred to them to put it in because at this point they don't know the they, rules of the genre. Yeah, they I mean, they're making as far as I know they're making like a Hitchcock movie. Yes, yeah, yeah, a slightly more contemporary and hip. Hitchcock movie, yeah, exactly, yeah. It's, I mean, Hitchcock's last decent film came out two years earlier, which is Frenzy. Oh, okay, yeah. Which is a serial killer picture. Ah. Um, 
And it's not really a slasher movie because it it doesn't it doesn't connect mm. to the the uh, the stereotypes and the cliches of the genre quite so much. But you can see that there. I mean, particularly Psycho, obviously, is the grandfather mm. of them all. But Frenzy is. You can read it as a, se- a stepping stone towards that. Yeah. Have you seen Family Plot? Hitchcock's last. No. I, you know, I don't. I might have done. I've definitely seen a really peculiar Hitchcock film. It's really dull. Yeah. It's like a third-rate episode of Columbo, and it looks really flat and televisual. Hmm. It's yeah. a real shame that that was his last picture. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, in the, in the attic, the cat is looking at Claire's body. Oh, yes, that's uh, an odd... Because there's That's that, an odd little sequence. There's that... Uh, that thing that you know, dogs will eat everything yes, in the house yeah. before they start on you. Cats will start nibbling you while you're they're asleep. More, they're more practical. Yeah. Well, I guess they just figure why why wait. There are several cats in my house. Yes. <laughs> I didn't bring them there myself. Um, and uh, while Mrs. Mac is killed, she's just on the verge of leaving. Yes. Of going to spend Christmas with her sister, and the, to the point where the taxi driver is still hanging around outside. Well, she gives the she gives a speech, doesn't she? As as the girls are going, out, she says, "Oh, I probably won't be here when you get back." And it's like doomed. Yeah. <laughs> the taxi driver being played by the film's producer. Oh, okay. Little cameo. Um, Jess gets another call, and at the same time, um, Peter suddenly appears, mm. suggesting, "Ah, coincidence." Is he? He's wandering around without a coat on. I think. Yes. Which kind of implies that maybe he's up in the loft, for example. Yeah, we should be thankful he's not still wearing that revolting. Jacket. Well, yeah, that's true. Yeah. Um, so. Maybe it suggests that. Oh well, no, because he's been at the conservatory there for years, so yeah. presumably would be used to the winter weather. Um, but he's again. He's just really mm. awful. Like uh, Jess says that the others are out on the search party looking for the missing girl. He says, "Oh, how noble." Yes, 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 it is. Yeah. What the fuck's wrong with you? Um, and when Jess tries to report the the call again, Nash says, "Oh, oh, it's probably nothing. Oh, it's yes. probably fine. It's just you know, just the internet trolls posting yeah. pictures yeah. of you naked online. You yeah, know, what, don't. You, know, you know what college kids are like. You wouldn't want to ruin his life, would you? Which yeah. is an excuse I have heard of why rape charges have not been brought against college athletes in the US. Oh, you don't want to ruin his life." Yeah. <laughs> no, no, I really do. Well, <laughs> send him to prison. See how he likes it. And Peter says that he he's decided that he's going to quit music. Oh, he's going to marry so that he can yeah. so that he and Jess can get married and raise their baby. And and Jess says, "Well, no, yeah, no." I, I, number one, I have a right to a decision in this. Mm. Number two, I've already decided. Um, yeah, and again, it's it, it's a great. Thin lip performance. Um, uh, you know, Peter is just that boy ain't right. No, he's. You could say that he's the most conservative character in the movie, yeah. and he's you know, the young, long-haired musician. Mm. And Mr. Harrison, who is quite uptight, he's never unreasonable. No. No, if anything, he's just unfailingly polite, possibly a bit overly timid, isn't it? Because obviously, yeah. even when Barb is being incredibly obnoxious he never rises to her no. bait um, it's I like that because mm. it would be so easy to say all oh, the adults are all you know stiff yes. they're going to say no he's yeah he's kind of square and old fashioned but you know he, he's worried about his daughter yeah, he's, worried about he's his, being reasonable and he feels a bit out of his depth yeah because he's in the yeah 
and he, and you know, he he strikes up the uh, kind of alliance with Chris, who's the mm. the college athlete, and they they work together, and they clearly respect each other. Yeah, it's. It's it's quite a progressive film in that way. I think, yeah, you know, we can work with the older generation. They're fine, really. It's 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 the the people among us who have horrible opinions that we need to worry about. Yeah, yeah. And the film does draw that that parallel line between whatever happened with Billy and Agnes and whatever's going on now with Jess and Peter. That there's Mm. there's on the ones on 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 Jess and Peter's side, you have this horrible clearly nasty controlling relationship yeah and whatever Billy did with Agnes is clearly some kind of extension of that and whatever Billy's doing now with all these these crank calls and, and abusing women hmm I don't it's, it's a it's mirroring itself yeah I suppose it never occurred to me in a weird in a weird sort of way it never occurred to me that Agnes when Billy starts going, when, when when Billy starts arguing with Agnes on the phone or whatever it is, I just kind of assumed it was all in the killer's head. Yeah, you didn't, so you didn't think it was based on anything in particular. No, I just assumed it was rambling in a way. I never really kind of. Well, we're never told one way or the other. No. but you're right. It could just be insane gibberish. Yeah. But uh, the intention was that there was going to be a specific backstory oh, for okay. the killer. That it was going to be explained. Thank God that they didn't do no, that. It works, you... there's no, we just never find out. No. Spoiler for the ending. We never find out who the killer is. No. We never find out why he's doing it. And no. he gets away at the end. Well, that's what I mean. We'll, we'll obviously, we'll, we'll get to the ending because there's a couple, couple of things I kind of want to to talk about about the ending. But uh, but yeah, I know. Interestingly, I've kind of never occurred. I, I think I've just written his, his, his dialogue off as just rambling. That it didn't have any basis in fact. I, yeah, it's it's interesting to read it like that, but yeah. I just like that we get hints of some, that something, yeah, something, has happened. something really terrible has happened, mm. but we never really find out what it is because not just knowing just the the very the most superficial idea of it is much more horrifying than knowing oh, the yeah. details. Yeah, and because the, in the remake we do find out the details, and it's it's just not really sounds good, just, it's just, just sounds nonsense. It's silly, but also I mean there is that thing, isn't it? There's that principle that the more you explain something, the the, the, the less, the less effective it, the less it is. frightening it is. Yeah. The more you know about some, how something works, like when I used to be really scared of horror movies, that's less the case now because I know how all the gore yeah. effects are done. I tried to get my mother to watch Dawn of the Dead. Oh, <laughs> that went well. Um, and uh, I thought, well, she, she probably won't like all the gore. So I swipe, explain how they did all the gore effects. Mm. Yeah, well, but when the when the zombies are eating all the guts, that's just cooked chicken covered in peanut butter. They're eating chicken satay. Right. So, just if if you watch the movie and you think, oh, they're eating cuts, oh no, it's chicken salad. Just a nice, that's, nice their, that's their meal. That's yeah. what they're getting instead of a meal. <laughs> they're, not, they're not paying these extras. Yeah, but yes, I mean certainly, and given the way that the killer picks up on um, Peter's remark about like having a wart removed, yeah, it's obviously meant to have struck an echo within within Billy's mind, I guess. So yeah, yeah, maybe there really was an Agnes. <laughs> the detective is finally. By everything that's happened, is this right? Okay, these these calls, these, mm. this is clearly relevant. So they call back the house, but first they get hold of the phone number, yes. and we finally get the payoff to the joke yeah. earlier in the movie. And we have the other detective, who is, I believe, credited as laughing uh, just detective, laughing because man, yeah. all he does is sit there laughing his head off at how gullible Nash is. Yeah. 
Yes, that's quite a nice, nice little sequence that one. And then when when Nash finally thinks, oh, oh, it's something dirty, isn't it? Mm. And the detective almost falls off his chair, pissing himself. And but that's the that's the funniest moment in the whole. Even even Detective John Saxon thinks it's hilarious. Yes, yeah. But then we sort of have this sharp cut back to the house where mm. where Peter is on the verge of threatening Jess. Yeah. If you have an abortion, then. And that's and we, mm. yeah. The conversation luckily stops at that point. Yeah, the cops arrive and Peter storms out without his coat. Yes, as he spotted, and they decide they they've brought with them a phone engineer mm. who's going to tap the phone so that they can trace the call. Now they're, they're starting to run out of people. Yes, yeah. <laughs> um, Phil breaks down. Um, Jess is left alone by the fire. Billy is hiding in Barbara's room where she's. Sleeping off. Yes, she's drunk. Boozing it off from earlier, but she suddenly has an asthma attack. Mm. So Jess goes up to help her, and Bob says that she was having a dream that there was someone in her room watching her, and there was. Yeah. Oh yes. And there are carol singers outside, and while Jess is distracted listening to them, Billy goes back into Bob's room and stabs her to death with a little glass unicorn. Mm. And he says, before he kills her. Don't tell them what we did. Oh, that's right. Again, don't, I don't want to know what you did. No. It's horrible. Yeah. What you, what you did with a baby? Oh. And the, but the baby is supposed to be still alive, maybe? I, oh. I mean, I could make jokes, but I really no, don't want to. No, it's probably not. It's horrible. Yeah. It's like that Transformers joke that I can't tell people on a microphone because it's too tasteless. Okay, I'm going to have to ask you about that one afterwards now. That's never going to be on the podcast, listener. I don't want to tell it on a microphone because it's too horrible. It'll come back to haunt you in 20 years' time when you're running as an MP. Well, this is the uh, the Langford rule. Um, Bonnie Langford explained this on the set of Doctor Who to her successor, Sophie Aldred. Never say anything in a, in a TV studio that you wouldn't want to be discussed behind your back mm. because there are microphones everywhere and you don't know which of them are on and who's listening. Yeah, makes sense. Um... They manage to trace the call, and that's where the, the line about having a water removed comes up. Mm. Well, that's and and the whole and it was really it was with the sequences. It was as they start to trace the phone call and stuff. That's I thought when the film really sort of kicked into gear. Um, where it, start, it really starts to accelerate. Yeah, yeah, and it get, uh, and it's because you suddenly realise what a great location an old phone exchange is. You couldn't do that sequence now, but the the sequence no. of the engineer and there's all the bits of mechanics and everything's clicking and whirring and moving. It's a lovely sequence, just that shot of him moving between the stacks. Mm. And yeah, couldn't do it these days. It's a great location. Mm. It's uh, it reminds me of in THX one one three eight when they're running around the archives and there's all these, yeah. these very long corridors that they're running parallel to or perpendicular to rather. Yeah. And then the the man comes in who's been shot in the arse. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Again, nothing to do with the rest of the movie, but just a little bit of humour, mm. just to sweeten it so that it's not too dark. Peter phones the house. Oh, that's and right. And he's really upset. Um, but, and he mentions the baby, and then when the detective mm. calls back, he asks about it. And he suspects that Peter was in the house during the call. Yeah. The search party comes to the window, and it's mentioned actually, there's people going in and out of this house constantly. The doors and windows are not locked. Mm. And I read something about it that said, well, yeah, Canada. Yes, yeah, yeah. Why would they? Be? Why, why would you lock the doors? What would you have to worry about? Somebody might unexpectedly bring you some patine or something. <laughs> yeah. 
So I've seen a picture of platoon. I don't think I'd want to put that in my body. Um, We've just lost Canada. <laughs> oh no! I'm sorry. But, well, okay. You don't have to eat any steak and kidney pie. No, this is you. Yeah, that's true. Oh, yeah, that's true. But it does remind me. It feeds back to Halloween, where it's mm. you know it's the local neighbourhood. Yeah. It's fine. Why would you? Why would you want to lock your doors? You know everyone around there. And actually, having said that, it's reminded me of one of the reasons I think I find the opening sections of the film a bit slow and a bit dull is the nobody knows they're being stalked by a madman. And so there's there's no... Everyone just goes, oh, now so-and-so's disappeared. That's strange. And it never goes... And it reminds me a bit of Friday the 13th, um, where... No one realises there's a masked lunatic. No, the and the I film's just incredibly going. flat because it's people sitting there going, gee, Brad's been a while looking for the... Dog. The dog. I'll go out and see if Brad's away. Goes outside, gets brutally murdered... And 20 minutes later, something goes, gee, Bill's been gone for a while. Oh, and, he, yeah. and it just, the film just kind of dragged itself out because there's no tension because nobody knows they've got a reason to be tense. It's a difficult situation to handle dramatically. Mm. Um, you need to keep a level of tension consistent. Yeah. So you need to have the idea that the threat could strike at any time. Yeah. And I think that's one of the reasons why is suddenly they've got the pressure of they're trying to trace the call and they know the killer's out there. And I think that's where I felt the film really starts to pick, where Black Christmas really starts to pick up and accelerate. Yeah. And yeah, it was certainly from, from the, the earliest tracing the call sequences, I thought uh, I, that was when I really started to get. The characters are now catching up on the level mm. of information that the audience yes. has, because we've known he's in the house all along. But firstly, they didn't know anyone was there at all. Now they know someone's there, but they don't know where. Mm. And now it's sort of getting closer and closer to uh, yes. the situation that we're in. And there's, there's, there's another call with the, with the baby screaming on the yes, phone. Yeah. Again, how did the killer manage to make all these noises and make all these voices? Yeah. Because he's mad. Because he's mad, yeah. yeah. Um, while the detective finds the wrecked piano. Yes. <laughs> so, my God, someone murdered the piano. Another victim. But they finally trace the calls, and they're coming um, all together. Yeah, now. They're, they're coming, coming from, from inside the, the house. Yeah, and there's a sign because up to that point, I don't think I don't think the film's necessarily drawn any connection between the killer in the, the killer in the attic and the phone calls. And there is slightly a feeling that the phone calls could be coming from you know a phone box around the corner or something like that. Yeah, I remember being a little bit a little bit disappointed with the way it's portrayed in the film because it's you see the killer pick up the phone and it's obviously one of the girls' rooms and there was just a slight feeling that they tripped over their own punchline in a way that they revealed a little bit too early that the, that the phone calls are coming from upstairs. Well, they do, they do mention earlier on that there are two phone lines mm. in the house because Mrs Mack has her own yeah. line. So but, that's clearly where, where he's been phoning. Oh, from. yeah, yeah. But it's just... But again, I, I'm willing to cut them to some slack because there's a, they're inventing all this stuff. Mm. So they don't necessarily know. But I kind of thought that the, the moment that the audience is definitively told the phone calls are coming from upstairs should also have been... It, it undercuts that a little bit if the audience kind of sees that before they're told it, if that makes any sense. Yeah. Um, so the detective tells... Nash to phone back and get her out of the house mm. and he says Nash if you blow this I will kill you mm. so what does he do oh he blows he it he blows it yeah. immediately by telling her the 
actual truth. Yes. But the thing is, Phil has gone up. Barb is dead. Mm. Phil has gone upstairs. She's been murdered off screen. Yeah, to check on Barb. Hasn't yeah. It? So she's told to get out of the house, and this has been noted as a, a mistake that she doesn't go leave the house. Well, no, her two friends are upstairs. As well, far who's noted it as a mistake? People who weren't paying attention. Yeah, I've, no, seen, I've seen this written online. And, like, yeah, no, that's. Yeah, I mean, it's yeah. She doesn't leave the house because she thinks that her two friends are upstairs. Yeah, exactly. She's the only one alive in the house, yeah. but she doesn't know that. Yeah, and that again is that thing that that makes it. That's what just adds to the tension is now because you've got characters. Characters are worried because they know they're being stalked by a murderer, but she doesn't know exactly how much trouble she's in. No. Yeah. And she finds. Phil and Barb's bodies and then I think possibly my favourite shot in the whole film is Billy's eye through the crack in the door watching and his eye is really wide yeah and she shoves the door back and and he he screams really loudly and he's just going berserk yeah but again interesting because it becomes the tradition that the killers don't show pain or they don't show... And so to have that very sort of human reaction from him, that, yeah, he's just had a doorknob in the kidneys, of course he's going to be in agony. Mm. Um, but my, I don't think Michael Myers ever... No, show, he never... Never he, utters a sound, does he? And, well, no, that's... Well, Michael Myers is, is a very different... Well, yes, yeah. Well, Jason, Jason Voorhees never... Oh, my stabbing arm's tired or something. <laughs> switch switch Got, arms for his machete. Yes. Um... So he chases her through the house, she locks herself in the basement, mm. and he's slamming against the door, trying to get in, screaming, sort of, and suddenly stops. Yeah, and then he goes away. And he goes away, and then Peter starts creeping around outside. Yeah, and I was in bits at this point, because I, I genuinely, I couldn't decide if Peter was the killer or not. I, I really, it really got to me, and I was surprised, actually, at just how, how tense and wound up I was during this sequence. It's, it so obviously has to be him. Yeah. But only if the film is playing by the rules. Yes. But the rules haven't been invented. Exactly. Yet. Yeah. Peter, Peter gets in and he approaches Jess, trying to comfort her, but mm. she beats him to death. Yes. And cops turn up. Jess is put into bed. And actually, this this sequence I like because it starts in a very close shot of Olivia mm. Hussey and then very slowly pulls out to show the whole of the room. And it's something like ninety second mm. shot, completely unbroken. She's in bed, sedated. Um, Chris and um, Mr. Harrison and the detective are there and Mr. Harrison finally just, just collapses yeah. and he's helped out of the house and there are, there are reporters outside and there are, it's mentioned that there, there are too many bodies yes. for the local morgue which yeah. is a really it's a fairly grim it's a, it's a really grim detail but yeah it just reflects this is a totally alien yeah. situation this is, I mean, we're never given any real information of how big this place is supposed to be, no. this town. It's just a little college town, yeah. but it's so small that it can't even cope with that. I mean, presumably the university would have a medical school. I guess so. Um, um, but, everyone, again, actually, Jess is left alone in bed, lights out, silent, no one else in the house. And we pan across, we see Barb's room, we see Claire's room with her suitcases still at the end of the bed towards the attic and we can just hear a voice giggling mm. because Mrs. Mack and Claire's bodies are still in there and you can hear Billy say Agnes it's me Billy and then we pull out to see a cop on the porch and the phone starts to ring 
Mm. And the credits roll as the phone continues to ring and it just gets louder and louder and louder. And I'm not sure if if I'm going to be a bit grumpy. I think the show, I feel that it was unprofessional of the police not to check the attic. Um, well, the idea is that they've gone, but the cop but outside again, is waiting for the yeah, forensics uh, but I think to turn up. The one thing that actually works in their favour is that there was a guard outside. I mean, as far as they know, the killer is dead. There are two bodies upstairs with at least one other person missing. And I guess they just assume that maybe the other bodies aren't. I, I can I can kind of make it work in have, my own head. They, I have, just, they have no reason to assume that there are any other bodies no. in the house, but they are definitely going to go over that place with a fine tooth comb. Yeah. Um, I think it's a really great mm. thriller. It's very well directed. It has that sense of just realism, of not doing crazy angles or crazy lighting effects. It all feels totally real, yeah. and that makes the horror so much more effective. Yeah. Um, the storytelling, the way, I mean, we, we, we can see and we, we keep saying how it built yeah. the, the slash of you, but the fact that it's so different, we never, we never find out who Billy is. Mm. We never find out what his motivation is. We know, as you suggest, all that stuff about Billy and Agnes, that could be in his head. Do you think it's a mistake not to see Billy at all? Cause I no, got, I think it's fantastic that we never see him. Interesting, because I kind of got to the end and I felt a little bit cheated. That, but I don't know if that's just because I'm used to watching stuff like Doc. I'm used to having a nice Doctor Who esque. Like, like, like oh, Doc Martin? No, yeah, <laughs> no, it's a, a big nice you know, Doctor Who esque close up of the monster or something. And, but, and that might just be me. Yeah, I, no, I got, it was funny. I got to the end and I felt a little bit cheated, but it's, not, it's certainly not a failing. Um, um, I, I love it, it's just totally unknown. Mm. I think possibly actually in retrospect it works better mm. I think any information that you were given about that person would probably only ever be a disappointment um, I, I would say that it's become more relevant, I think the idea that it's, certainly I think it's the director's intention that it, you can read it as uh, about women being brutalised, yeah. that it's about whatever Billy's doing, these, these crank phone calls, it's clearly some kind of sexual Yes, um, yeah. fixation he has. Peter, you know, dicking around, being a revolting person generally, their complaints not being taken seriously by the cops. No, that's right. Until people actually turn up dead. Um, I think it's only become more relevant. Yeah, oh yeah, absolutely. And uh, my little line that I've written here is, this is a true midnight mass murder. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. Am I distracting you? <laughs> no, it's right. so. It reminded me of something. Uh, I, I can you uh, I was thinking about the sort of the tradition of of stories of um, serial killers stalking people on campus, and it reminded me of oh, a yes. Stephen King's short story called Strawberry Spring. And I was just intrigued oh. to go back and see when that had been written, and that was written in '68. So. Right. I don't know. I, I'm not really trying to draw anything. It just. It, I was just interested to see kind of where that, where that fitted into the overall timeline. Well, I can imagine that with college campuses in the 60s becoming more liberal... Yeah. Um, and politicised as well, And politicised. Yeah. That creates an, uh, an environment, certainly, where the idea of someone reacting against that kind mm. of environment and, and then someone like Stephen King then taking that, obviously, to a, a ridiculous yes, yes. extreme within, within the context of the story... That creates storytelling possibilities. So I can imagine there's you know a lot of parallel yeah. creativity going on there. 
And you think as well that presumably there was just enough news, obviously college campuses and feminism and that was all swilling around in the cultural melting pot at the time. So it's just interesting to see it coming out in the same way in different places. But Now, uh, last night I did the extra bit of research and I watched the remake. <laughs> um, Does it include a sequence where a character closes a medicine cabinet and the killer's reflected behind? No, it doesn't. Wow. Um, that doesn't stop it from being one of the worst films I've ever seen. <laughs> Um, it's written and directed by Glenn Morgan, who uh, cut his teeth on the X-Files. I was going to say, yeah. And then later created the Final Destination films. Yeah, so not a bad... Well, he's a writer. True. And uh, his, his only previous film he'd written and directed was another horror remake, which was Willard, uh, about a oh, creepy big... young man and his rat army. They remade. But a very worthwhile choice of actor to play the human king of the rat army, Crispin Glover. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because who else are you going to cast? There's no one weird enough mm. above him. Um, hmm. As I said, uh, the remake does go into the background of Billy yeah. and Agnes explains who they are. There's a flashback that takes about 20 minutes of the movie and it's a very short movie. Yeah. Um, and it's just... It does everything badly. Yeah. It's very small and limited. The whole... Uh, main action is set over the course of a single evening confined just to the sorority house which appears to be in the middle of nowhere because yeah. there's no connection with the outside world or anything yeah but the, but that's what makes it you know the, there's a distinct passage of time it's what two at least two days about two days more, yeah. Isn't it? yeah no you and lose that and sense and of time and geography uh, yeah and there's a sense of the environment because yeah. we see around the college we see the police station we see the park there's you know we see mm. that the the story is settled in the house but it's part of a whole community yeah. But here, no, this house appears to be in the middle of nowhere. We see no s- sign of there being any other buildings around. There's nothing set outside the house uh, in the in the nearby. Um, there's a hospital, which features at the end of the movie. Mm. There's the insane asylum where Billy lives, where he's obviously in cell 2512, and he's got Christmas lights up in his cell. Oh, and he's, as I said, he's got jaundice, so he's yellow. Yes, so he's bright yellow, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that has absolutely nothing to do with anything because the whole movie is lit with Christmas lights so that the colours of things are easily discernible. Right. So the fact that he is yellow has absolutely no bearing to the plot and is not really noticeable for most of the time he's on screen. (laughs) Um, I I found a video online that said, oh, this is regarded as an underappreciated classic and more and more people are regarding it as a great Christmas uh, Christmas horror movie. Are you sure? Hmm. Are you sure that people think that it's good because it's terrible? Yeah. But the guy who did that video clearly done his research because um, the movie had been heavily reshot. Oh. It was massively recut when it was released in the UK. Weirdly, it came out in the UK first. Oh. Uh, in America, it was released on Christmas Day. Okay. Which is the last possible day you can release a Christmas movie. Yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Um, they should have released... I mean, the first weekend of December is usually quite yeah. dead, so that's when you release this. Then you've got a few weeks run-up. In the UK, it came out a couple of weeks earlier. But um, the new scenes were shot for the trailer, new sort of gore scenes. There's someone trapped under an icy lake. Right. One of the other characters is being dragged into a thrashing machine that's covered in fairy lights... So the, um, this is the this is the worst sorority house. This is the sorority house between Murder Lake, the threatening machine, the lunatic asylum, and the hospital. Yeah. Wow. Oh, but it's a regular hospital. Yeah, so that's, that's true. Okay. It's not a creep. Not one of your creepy. And there's, there's a line right at the end of the movie 
that says, oh yeah, it's Christmas Eve. You should have said that at the start. Why is everyone <laughs> still in the house on Christmas Eve when they're going off to spend Christmas with their families? Yeah. This makes no sense. Um, and yeah, there's a bit where um, Billy, having murdered his mother, cuts yeah, cookie shapes out of her back and cooks them and eats them. Um, there's a Christmas tree that's covered in severed heads and people having their eyeballs ripped out all the way through. Yeah. And I and explained, well, the reason why this was, the reason why they, they, yeah. they made all these changes in the movie was supposed to be more atmosphere. Mm. Um, the movie was produced by Dimension, which was at the time a subsidiary of Miramax. Okay. So guess which sack of fetid giraffe cum barreled onto the set and demanded that changes be made. Oh, right. I couldn't possibly guess, I don't think. Is he then the person whose name is all over the news at the moment? That's the one. Yeah. It's Harvey Weinstein. Everyone's favourite fuckface. Um, he demanded the film be made gorier to uh, compete with the likes of Saw and Hostel yeah. um, to completely change the marketing and add in all these extra scenes that have nothing to do with the rest of the movie and aren't yeah. in the movie. And as a result, the film got terrible reviews and flopped. Yeah. Kel surprise. Yeah. And yeah, it's, exactly. it's terrible. It's really terrible. And um, Glenn Morgan hasn't directed another film. Hmm. Which doesn't surprise me in the least. No. The sad thing is that um, executive producer on the remake was Bob Clark himself. Oh, okay. It was also the last film he had his name on. Uh. Tragically, four months later, he and his son were killed in a car crash. Um, they were struck while in their car, head-on by a drunk driver. Mm. And they were both killed instantly. But it is, as we said at the start, so rare that a director can have two great holiday films to his name. Yes, yeah. So even though he did not leave this plane in a way in which anyone would want to, people are going to remember it twice over every December. Yeah, definitely. Thanks to Chris for making time for this recording. Cinema Limbo is now on iTunes with over 30 episodes available, so please download, review and subscribe. Podnose is also on Patreon, so please do pop some money in the box to help us with our running costs. We're also on Twitter at cinema underscore limbo and in person at j underscore j underscore phillips with two L's. However, until next time... And a very, very Christmas... listening to Cinema Limbo, hosted and produced by Jeremy Phillips, with editing and music by Philip Alderman. Cinema Limbo is part of the Podnose Podcasting Network, so please visit us at www.podnose.com.